This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I said, we have to scrap what we were doing for the postpartum chapter. This is way, this is way bigger. How are we able to figure it out in the 19th century? how to better take care, in quotes, of, of women, um, and we can't do it today. That was Bethany Johnson and Margaret Quinlan on Psychologists Off the Clock. Curious what psychologists chat about over coffee? We are three clinical psychologists who love to discuss the best ideas from psychology. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoengren, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. In this podcast, we explore the psychological principles that we use in our clinical work. And we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. So I was really excited to have two authors and professors, Bethany Johnson and Margaret Quinlan, join me for a discussion of their book. The title of their book, which I think describes most mothers' experience, is You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering Media and Medical Expertise. Bethany and Margaret come from really different backgrounds. One is a history professor and the other is a communications professor. And they actually came together as friends. They became really close friends. And then together with their research backgrounds, they um, their friendship and their content areas of expertise drove the content of this book. I love, Yael, hearing the story about their friendship and their collaboration and how this creative work that they're doing was born through their relationship. It reminds me a little bit of us creating the podcast. I thought it was so cool to hear about that. Yeah, and their academically styled book goes really deep into the research and history of parenthood, media, and medical, and other kinds of expertise. But in our interview, they really brought the content of the book to life by sharing their own personal stories, both of their friendship, as you're saying, Debbie, but their personal parenting stories, as well as stories from many decades-long history and research. And the take-home gestalt of the message is that mothers have forever basically received the message that we are doing it wrong. But what's so beautiful about um, their book and about our conversation is that doesn't have to be the end of the story. There's actually a lot that we can do by examining the history and developing a deeper understanding of how mothering media and expertise interact. As I was listening, I think there were two things that I thought were really striking from the interview that that kind of create this big problem for mothers. The first is that we have a really long history of mother blaming, and I think it still goes on to to today. Everything from prenatal care to attachment to things like autism and schizophrenia have at some point historically been blamed on mothers. And even now, I think we see, you know, as a mom, you're supposed to be engaged, but not a helicopter mom. And you're supposed to, you know, do everything just right in terms of screen time and eating everything organic. It just feels like so much pressure. We have to do it all and do it all perfectly. Otherwise, our kids are going to pay the price. And there was an example, there were a lot of examples of this in this interview. I think that some were kind of disturbing, some were almost funny historically looking back now. Um, but it just, it just leads to this sense of self-criticism, like we're not doing things well. And an example that came to mind for me after giving birth, I had to do basically physical therapy for my pelvic floor, which is a personal disclosure. It's extremely common for women who who give birth to have this issue. But what was so surprising about me is that no one ever really talked to me about it. 
Maybe a couple friends did it along the way, but it took several years to get a diagnosis. And once I did, it was super easily treated. I just had to do a few months of physical therapy. Yeah, I think that you're raising a whole host of issues that the authors go into a lot of detail about. And the more that we understand the history of how we've arrived at this period of time where there's so much pressure and this experience of such little support, the more that we can take better and more effective steps to take better care of ourselves as we enter into and and sort of, you know, persist through our parenting roles because it it isn't easy. I'm here with Bethany Johnson and Margaret Quinlan to talk about their new book, You're Doing It Wrong, Motherhood, Media, and Medical Expertise. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Thanks for inviting us. I am really curious. Um, how this book came about. You come from different um, disciplinary backgrounds. And so I was just kind of curious if you could tell me a little bit about how you joined forces and and how this book uh, project emerged. Well, I'll tell you our meeting story. And Maggie, you can tell everybody how that led to our book. So (laughs) my husband and I Uh, we found out that he would have to move to Charlotte for his job and someone who works at a university, it's easier for me to find work. So uh, we lost our house in Hurricane Sandy on the way here. And then we had to get a real estate agent who could help us find a furnished apartment. They hooked us up with a woman named Julie Wall Burris. Shout out to Julie. And she, what we didn't know a soul in Charlotte. And she said, Hey, I have a neighbor. Um, I really think you'd like her. Can I do a dinner with all of us together? And Julie's probably 10 or 15 years older than we are. So I was assuming the neighbor would be too, but you know what? We're in a new city. We love friends of all ages, want to meet people, the whole thing. I walked in and it was Maggie and 15 minutes in a dinner. I think we both realized we were ignoring everyone else talking (laughs) about our research And we got on like a house on fire right away. And two months later, we were drafting our first article together. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Bethany was studying the history of twilight sleep, which was um, a concoction given to women during childbirth that was supposed to take away your pain, um, but actually erased your memory of the pain. And, um, and some of the discourse she collected was was really about, in, in my perspective, about doctor-patient communication around this treatment. And so, um, you know, we started talking about my research and interest in doctor-patient communication. And, you know, we decided, you know, to, to write that article together. And in the process of it, we were traveling up to New York City, to Brooklyn, to go to some archives to gather some more data because she lost some of it um, in in the hurricane as as a historian a hurricane would would be pretty traumatic so we had to go and recollect some some data and find some new some new data and bethany and her husband at that time were going through infertility treatment Mm -hmm. and we were in a hotel room in brooklyn and i was about six months pregnant you know just really showing with my my first baby and during that time we were sitting on the bed. It was like seven in the morning. She gets a phone call from an embryologist in a treatment center or a a fertility clinic in Charlotte who leaves a voicemail saying that her treatment was not going well and um, the embryos were not doing doing well. And that was left on a voicemail before eight o'clock in the morning by an embryologist. So Bethany right away calls and says, you know, Try, you know, trying to get rerouted to the, the clinic. Um, the clinic was closed. And so it was this whole thing, you know, just devastating, devastating news right before eight o'clock in the morning. And, you know, she finally got in touch with them, got, you know, was able to talk to her husband. And, you know, I just said, let's go home, you know, let's just drop everything. Um, and you can go home and just cry and hug your husband. Um, and, you know, she's just, she just said, nope, we're here to do research. There's nothing I can do. Let's just go. And so the whole day, you know, she just, you know, had amazing focus. And I, you know, the whole time, all I could think about was what she was probably experiencing. And, you know, we just collected our data, kept focused. And, um, and then, you know, we drove home and I just said, you know, Bethany, that should never have happened. 
an embryologist should not have been the one calling without any communication training. You know, yeah. what can we do about this? And, you know, I said, I'd be happy to help. I realize I'm pregnant, probably not the best time for me to be um, doing a study like this, but let's talk to women about their experiences with doctor patient or practitioner patient during infertility treatment. And from there, by the time we got home, we had an IRB proposal ready to submit and we submitted it and then collected over 30 interviews with women learning about um, their experiences and wrote several articles about it. And one thing led to another. Bethany um, like, ended up miraculously getting pregnant, you know, a couple you know, a couple after my last treatment. Yeah. yeah. After her last treatment. Wow. And it was that, you know, the, the, the myth that, that happens that, um, you know, that as soon that as you stop trying, it will yeah, happen. Just relax. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Give up and you'll, you know, it'll happen. Yeah. So, um, you know, from there, from then on, we just, one thing led to another, led to another. And the, the book, it really almost wrote itself. Um, yeah. that, you know, we just, like topics kept falling into our lap and we just, you know, to kind of took it from there. So in lots of ways, the big piece of this book feel like our story too. That's why we start the introduction with a kind of quilt of things that could be true about one of us, both of us or either of us. We mix them up all together. Even some of our family members don't know who is who in the <laughs> opening narrative, but it was really important for us to weave our own stories into our research because our research together in this book also grew out of our friendship. I remember telling Maggie that I was pregnant and no one has ever screamed that loudly. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember Maggie saying, I'm so much more excited for you than I was for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> it is, it's fun to hear um, you talk about the story of coming together because even as you're talking about like the twilight sleep medication, which actually I had never heard of and I read a lot about in your book mm-hmm. um, and you're talking about sort of communication between doctors and patients and even, you know, that myth that gets perpetuated of like, oh, you just need to relax and then it'll happen. A lot of these are themes that really come up in your book. And I just want to sort of say like the title of this book, you're doing it wrong. Like what mother, what parent really hasn't felt that way? I mean, I feel that way on a daily basis. (laughs) Um, And it's so interesting to sort of go through the history and think about it's not just modern day parents that are experiencing this and the way that you show these stories through history of how we've been getting this message, parents have been getting this message really forever. is so informative in terms of how we can deal with it today. So I, so let's sort of back up and, and let me just ask you if you can articulate for our listeners, what are the central questions that your book tries to answer? Well, I would say we're interested in um, health issues that women have have encountered for generations. Um, and, you know, looking at the ways in which lay experts have grown exponentially on, you know, not just in our everyday lives, but on social media. And so we're interested in particular health crises that women face, um, during what we term the life cycle of early motherhood, which is preconception through, um, early toddlerhood. And so, you know, we look at some of these these crises, what did they look like throughout history um, over the last 150 years? And then what do they look like on social media today? And, you know, what are some of the um, ways in which expertise is disseminated around the mother-child dyad? Mm -hmm. And I think the crux, uh, you know, as we frame it that way, one of the things we're really concerned about is the whole notion of you're doing it wrong as a construct that does really specific work. It does two things, I think. It alienates us from one another because it puts us in a position where we have to compare or contrast ourselves with other people instead of understanding that this message is very global and we're all receiving it, right? So that breaks down potential communication um, among peers and people that could really support each other. And it also does the damaging work, I think, of putting the target on the individual versus the systems that create some of these issues. So pregnancy is a great example. We have lots of ideas for how people should behave when they're pregnant. We have lots of ideas about how they should eat. But we're very happy to say to a pregnant person, you aren't eating the right foods. 
we're not willing to put systems in place that ensure that everybody has access to the foods we're telling them to eat. And so it's very easy to just say you're doing it wrong, right? Because then the, each individual person has to sit with that and they start to believe that they alone have to solve these problems. But it's never worked that way and that's not going to be our solution. Yeah, I love that framing. And I, I do think that um, really reflecting on how pervasive that message is and what and how it can be so damaging, both in terms of how we respond, but also like, you know, at, at a system level and how we respond at an individual level. I think it's really helpful mm-hmm. to kind of break it down. The other um, thing that I thought was uh, really con- consistent throughout your book is is this drawing of distinction between lay expertise and technical expertise. And I'm curious why you think it's so important. And maybe first we could just start by defining what is technical expertise and what is lay expertise. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So uh, what Maggie and I were looking at previously, technical expertise is your sort of, uh, I have a degree in this. Um, I have experiential and trained knowledge and expertise, degrees, certifications, whatever. I've gone through a certain system of knowledge and adopted that in theory and practice and then now using that information. Lay expertise can also be experiential, but it tends to be categorized outside of institutions and structures. So it may be folkloric, it may be um, certain types of spiritual practices, which can also be technical. Um, But you're sort of imagining the doctor as the technical expert and the patient is the lay expert. Now, the patient will have a level of expertise on their own body that the doctor in the room could never dream of having despite all of their, you know, their book knowledge, right? So what we're trying to look at in the book is the ways where the boundaries between these categories get fuzzy, how they speak to each other, influence each other, and how sometimes you can't easily separate what kind of expertise belongs where. Maggie, does that sound right for you? Yeah. And I think Bethany usually puts this in pretty in a pretty interesting way that anybody who is confident, they are deemed in some spaces as being um, an expert, right? So if you're a beach body coach and you sell Shakeology, you're an expert or you're a coach, right? And so, um, you know, we see all these really complicated conversations of doctors and nurses responding to people's questions on, you know, um, Facebook mom groups. And, you know, so these worlds are, are all, you know, colliding in, in interesting ways. And it's hard, it's hard to know who, who to believe or who, you know, what camp you're in and, you know, trying to, to make sense of all of that information and knowledge. And there's a long history in America of uh, a sort of lay or grassroots medical movement speaking back to and changing the technical practice of medicine. In the 1830s to the 1850s, you had this first populist uprising. There's a really great book about it called The Marketplace of the Marvelous by Erica Yannick. And um, she goes through that movement really well. And so what Maggie and I are showing people in the book is it seems like we're in another moment like that right? But social media is the marketplace now for these new knowledges and forms of expertise and these new perspectives. But they may be using things that are actually quite old technologies. That's wait, Say a little bit more about that. So in what ways does social media use old technologies that were identified in the 19th century populist movement? Um, so, um, homeopathic treatments, that was an early 19th century intervention. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton had a homeopathic kit that she treated her family with. And she saw that as uh, a practice that spoke back to what today we would call patriarchal structures. Um, because she could doctor her, her family, um, You know, there's a hydrotherapy practice that just opened here in Charlotte where you can soak in a tank. Hydrotherapy was a major multi-decade movement in the Europe and the U.S. Um, And interestingly, what, (laughs) you know, at the time it seemed so successful because bathing wasn't a really regular practice. So by putting people in clean water a lot, yeah, you cleaned up their skin and they were hydrated and that improved people's health in, in many cases. But you see those practices opening again today and they advertise on Facebook, you know. One thing that I just want to sort of reflect back on is this idea that, you know, 
we have expertise ourselves. And I think that that's such an important point that there all, are all these experts and some of them do have technical backgrounds and a lot of knowledge, but that at the end of the day, we have more expertise about our own unique bodies. And I think that that is a really important message that is one that's um, useful to return to. Well, I think too, our book really talks about um, sort of the male medical gaze and the impact that that's had on, you know, people believing their own bodies and honoring their own bodies that, you know, if you're told by a doctor that it must be in your head or, you know, the messages that women have been given throughout history about their bodies and who it belongs to, um, you know, that we're seeing that, you know, really coming alive when, you know, women are experiencing all of these different symptoms, such as postpartum depression or, you know, infertility and, you know, the pregnant body and, um, you know, that the impact of, of the medical institution is, is, you know, is something that I have definitely felt throughout those stages. That brings up a really interesting um, point that you make that honestly, I'd never thought about, which is that, you know, pregnancy didn't used to be sort of a medical condition, you know, before there was the technology of hospitals and um, obstetrics to deliver a baby in the, you know, various ways that we that are so familiar and just feel so natural now. It wasn't something that was considered like a medical condition. So I wonder if you guys could actually talk us through some of the interesting parts of the history of, of how, um, birthing a child has really evolved over time and what the impact on the individual experience is as a result of that change. Um, Historians have hit this one hard uh, since the 60s and 70s, which has been amazing for me coming up as a student when I did because I had so much good stuff to read. So sort of major themes you know, women got together in their communities and helped other women have babies. And that's basically how it's been since people, right? Um, Certainly there were neighbors around, there were male partners around. um, And if there were no women around and and it was you and a male partner, that's who was there to, to do this. In the late 18th century, very, very, very low level of this entry of the male midwife. And this practice grows very slowly up until the end of the 19th century. And then it starts picking up steam. There was some movement around the Civil War, but I think that that stalled it a little. So you have men coming more and more into the birthing room. And people found this very scandalous at the beginning. But once we went through this first sort of bureaucratic wave where we started changing our medical schools and you had to, you know, you couldn't just pay $200 and be a doctor. You had to actually take more than three courses. And, you know, so by the early 20th century, you have the American Medical Association, you have institutions, right? And you have medical schools like Johns Hopkins, and you have reports on medical education this is when specialties start to emerge and you start having the OBs that weren't taken seriously in the 1870s become a practice in their own right. By 1930, most of the midwifery practice, even among some immigrant communities, had been almost eradicated through legislation. We write a lot about, or I have written previously about um, the immigrant midwives in New York City and how some female nurses working with doctors helped push many of them out of practice um, in beginning in around 1907. But in 1935, the obstetricians of New York City reported that the midwives that they had tried to legislate out of existence still had a better survival rate than they did. And um, a lot of that had to do with really old practices that actually kept things cleaner and sanitary um, and just an intimate knowledge of female bodies that other, you know, cis females have when they're walking each other through it. But doctors didn't know. I mean, the the word quickening is interesting too, because no one knew you were pregnant until you could feel the baby. They had no way of knowing. And this is true into the early 20th century in many places Um, until they could hear the fetal heartbeat with the stethoscope, which is a later 19th century invention. No one knew. It was, a, it was a mystery. It was just this thing that happened. It wasn't something that you knew, you know, when you were two weeks pregnant and could monitor and take ultrasounds of and blood work on and constantly be looking at until the mid-20th century, really. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of an interesting transition of not knowing that much about how pregnancy works and needing to rely on these more informal network structures to kind of support the delivery process. Mm-hmm. And, and in that way, almost having like more freedom within it because mm-hmm. there weren't, there wasn't, there weren't so many expectations placed upon pregnant women. Mm-hmm. Um, and now there's so many expectations and in a strange way, it's almost paradoxical. It's because we know so much and, and all that information and those standards, I think create this sense of this, this, you know, really omnipresent pressure of like, you know, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the rise of prenatal care and, um, and, you know, books and textbooks around that and, you know, the ways in which, um, you know, pregnant bodies were talked about and um, the fetus was talked about. And, you know, it was like, again, another, another way in which, you know, women's bodies were controlled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, one really interesting historical figure that I hadn't heard about that you guys talk a lot about in your book is Dr. Cooney. Uh, mm-hmm. And for listeners who haven't heard of him, he's the, um, he's credited with, uh, developing the incubator, although it's not, he didn't, but he sort of popularized it. But the way that he popularized it was like as, at a, as a sideshow event. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you can sort of talk about both the positives and the negatives of, of this important historical figure in terms of, again, this pervasive message of you're doing it wrong, because in some ways he did some really wonderful things. And in some ways he really created this, um, sense of judgment and, and really sort of patronizing uh, attitude towards women. Yeah, and we're about the only <laughs> other people write about Martin Cooney, and we might give him the hardest time in our book. And he, he was truly a lovely person. Um, and I think Maggie can speak to, you know, how it impacts people in the present, particularly through um, one of the stories in our chapter, but he, he was an immigrant who was showing um, early German incubators at the London Exposition. He ended up in the U.S. doing World Fairs, the Buffalo Exposition, Maggie's home area. (laughs) Um, And he eventually um, got his residency here and set up on Coney Island because he couldn't get um, local hospitals to want to support you know, at the time it was just like, sorry, you had a two-pound baby, they're going to die. And there are stories of fathers wrapping their two and a half pound baby up in a newspaper and dry, taking a taxi to Coney Island, leaving their baby there. And their 85 year old child is telling the story later um, of how to they us. survived to us. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. So you directly interviewed some of these survivors <laughs> that, or individuals who survived because of those incubators. Yeah. Wow. We got to talk wow. to Beth Allen, right, Maggie? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She was amazing. Yeah. Um, so he knew he had to do this to save these children and also to help educate the public, but you're right. He had a lot to say about why it was mm, the mother's fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you, this quote, you quote him as saying, you know, things like, uh, you know, women, the mothers are, I'm not quoting directly, but something to the effect of that mothers are responsible for having premature babies because um, they're working, they're dancing, they're not eating well. And um, he, I think, even talked about sort of the disinterest that mothers had in bringing the babies home. (laughs) Well, I'm sure they were scared, right? And, you know, we didn't have a label then really for postpartum depression. and, um, And, you know, just in so many ways, him bringing babies out of the hospital was actually a better place for them because uh, mm-hmm. at that point we didn't really have um, what, like antibiotics and things like that. So hospitals were actually very dangerous places for premature babies. So mm-hmm. um, in some ways, you know, he, he was onto something, but I think the, the, some of the implications and messages that he, that he gave to mothers and, you know, and sort of the idea that he saved all these, all these babies and, you know, he didn't really include them in, in the care of, of the children. So, you know, they would bring their children home and not know how to take care of them or, you know, didn't have a a bond because he had wet nurses who he fed the way he wanted them to, you know, to eat. And, you know, they were, they were able, they were better equipped in his opinion to take care of the babies. 
Yeah. And so you could really understand how that would leave them with a sense of a real lack of confidence. Mm -hmm. I would have been surprised if any parent had walked in on graduation day and been like, all right, let's do this. You know, it's shocking to me to read this story that any parent who hadn't been able to see their child except behind glass uh, for not even as you know, today parents can go into the NICU that their babies can, it's very complicated, but they can do skin to skin. They do kangaroo care. They can put their arms through, you know, there was none of that with Dr. Cooney's babies. He didn't allow it. And, you know, you look at your child through a glass wall when you can get there over the course of three months, and then you're just supposed to take the stranger home with you. And so his critique really seemed very removed from the reality of these families. And I think something that is two important things, um, he didn't do the caring, the nurses did. Um, So he had very little particular interaction. He set up the systems, but he did more in terms of talking to the public when they came um, to visit the exhibit. And two, he wasn't a doctor. Yeah, that that was an interesting part. Is that it turns out that he wasn't actually a doctor. Yeah, we're pretty the sure. There's there's yeah. no no one that we've researched, and none of the materials that are connected to him that we've researched have have we found information that he was a medical doctor. Yeah, yeah, but it is interesting, like to to even sort of look back on history and see how the message of how infertility and prematurity and sort of all those early stages really get um, put onto the mother as having done something wrong. Cause I think that, you know, nowadays we certainly feel that way. And I think it's important to note that that isn't, that's not like just a modern day phenomenon. That's something that's been present for, for a long, long time. I mean, who, who, I don't even know when it began, but certainly in Martin yeah. Cooney's era, that yeah. was something that women were experiencing. Absolutely. And we, one of the people that we interviewed, um, Madeline, who goes by Maddie, you know, her diagnosis uh, six years ago was that she had an incompetent cervix. So our medical language still, to this day, the medical diagnosis that you get is horribly shaming. Her cervix wasn't incompetent. <laughs> you know, her cervix was doing what her body told her cervix to do. Her body just needed a little help giving her cervix a different message. And that's why you use something like a cerclage or something like that. But the, the way that we diagnose people today reflects our thinking that the woman's body is flawed and is always on the verge of disaster. Yeah. Yeah. And it would be hard as a woman, not to internalize some of that. But I think, again, understanding some of the history can help us take a step back and and sort of recognize and maybe, you know, choose different language for ourselves, or at least sort of assert Mm -hmm. ourselves in a doctor's office or wherever we may be. I want to transition us to talking a little bit about the, um, the postpartum period and how changes in our technology and culture have really, um, caused an evolution in the role of, um, expertise in the postpartum period. And it's kind of, it's another area where there's a little bit of a paradox because what you guys talk about is that there was a lot more postpartum care in the 19th century than there is now. And it's, it's a pretty interesting evolution. Oh, well, so this was, this is very typical of Maggie and our relationship. I, she had to be in Buffalo and I was going to get to be in Massachusetts that summer where we go every summer to visit family. And so I, contacted the archive there and I found out that they had some obstetrical records. Um, And Maggie and I had already planned out the postpartum chapter. We were going to talk about postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. And we were starting to do, you know, radian six analyses on all this language and social media. So I get to the Francis Contoy Medical Library at Harvard and they hand me these books and I can't photograph them or do anything that you can do in other archives because of the HIPAA agreements on these. And these are cases from 1896 through 1905. So it's likely that the grandchildren of these people might be in their 80s at this point. But the, I let you know, we're really into people's privacy. So it's good. <laughs> All I could do was type. And I took one five minute break 
every day, the whole five days or three days that I was there. And I would go into the bathroom with a granola bar and I would frantically text Maggie. Oh my gosh, Maggie, you would not believe what I'm finding in here. I will send you my notes as soon as I get home. I need your thoughts on this right away. Can you please find three articles on this and look at th- look up these three for you? And she'd be like, yes, I am on it. I am doing it. It's happening. you know. And we would just, it was frantic because what I didn't expect to find was hundreds of pages. These were postpartum care analogs. This was these women, they were Jewish and Italian immigrants largely in tenement housing in Boston. The Boston Lying In Hospital used their residents and they trained them in obstetric care by having them go to people's houses, help them give birth clean up afterwards, make them tea, weigh the baby, do all the things. And then they would go back once or twice a day for as long as it took for both of those individuals to be healthy, Hmm. Um, which is unheard of today. And I just, I remember saying to Maggie, and this is why I love one of the many reasons I love working with Maggie. I, I called her on my way home on the train and I said, we have to scrap what we were doing for the postpartum chapter. This is way, this is way bigger. This is a way bigger deal. And she said, done. I can't wait to read your notes, <laughs> you know? And then we took it from there together. And I think what, you know, you know, we see the, the, you know, the rates of women dying in childbirth today. We see just the horrible care that women um, are given in those first six weeks, if any care, (laughs) Um, you know, that, you know, Bethany and I both talk about our own experiences of, you know, both having crises um, in that first six week period, you know, going to our child's pediatrician, they can't help us going to a lactation consultant, going to our doctor, you know, all of the having to bundle up a screaming newborn who has, you know, stomach issues or acid reflux and, and everything. And, you know, just how are we able to figure it out in the 19th century, how to better take care and quotes of, of women. Um, and we can't do it today, right. That, you know, my, um, daughter, my firstborn daughter, she, um, right after, birth, um, I was breastfeeding her and she um, stopped breathing and had to be resuscitated. And, you know, there wasn't anybody, you know, next to me helping me learn to breastfeed for the first time. You know, she was taken away away from us for hours with no updates on how she was doing. And, you know, just little things that could have made that experience a, a lot better. And, you know, just thinking about somebody coming to my house and teaching me to breastfeed on my couch. And, you know, I don't have one of the fancy breastfeeding um, chairs that they have at the lactation office and all of those questions that, you know, we just had to sort of figure out on our own. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a lot of us are raising our children away from family and away from, um, you know, away from real communities that can help us during that period. So, and Maggie and I are employed and we have health insurance and we have deeply invested in supportive partners. We have economic privilege. We are straight. We are cis. We we are sort of at the pinnacle of privilege in American society. And it was a total crap show for us. So I was just so, I remember, well, also I was 36 weeks pregnant with my second. So I was I was a little ragey when I was researching and writing this chapter because I was like, how can it be this dangerous in the postpartum period? You know, and then in the weeks after when Otto was so little, I said to Maggie, like, we are the people that have the most access and agency right now. Imagine you don't have a car. You don't have legal immigrant documentation. You don't have the ability to speak English as your first language. You don't have health insurance. You don't have a job or you work at a minimum wage job. How, how do mothers survive this in our current system? You know? Yeah. And I think that that's sort of the, the piece that you were talking about in the very beginning of our conversation about sort of we need to sort of expect more from our systems, from our institutions, that if we're telling mothers that they're doing it wrong, that a huge part of that might be that the support is not available. It's also an interesting point that you make in your book that 
social media is to, to a large extent filling in the care gap that used to be available through many of our institutions. And I, and I'll say from my personal experience um, as somebody who lived far away from family with a spouse who had very limited paternity leave, who, mm-hmm. you know, felt overwhelmed by all of those things, you know, I really did turn to social media because yeah. I had no idea what was going on. And, um, you know, and it was in some ways a place to get a lot of information, but then you sort of, again, run into that um, gray area of like, who's an expert that is, you know, in a position to provide good information, helpful information. Mm -hmm. And I think that social media offers a lot in that way, but it also can be a bit of a trap and you write about some of the traps, but also (laughs) some of the power that comes with it. So I I don't know if there's sort of more that you want to add on to that. I mean, I think, you know, in general, our, our book probably would read as, as pretty hard on social media, but I think you, you make a great point that there are a lot of benefits. Like, you know, I was able to donate breast milk to mothers with children in the NICU, um, even to my research partner, Bethany, um, you know, through social media connections. Right. And so, you know, I think for me, I'm the type of person that can quickly, Um, get on social media and go down some pretty dark rabbit holes, you know, getting trapped into some of these conversations where Bethany has uh, probably a healthier relationship with social media that she can get in and get out a little quicker than I can. And, um, you know, it's, you know, it's, we're at the point, I think that we can't just tell women don't Google, right. Don't, you know, go to social media, that this is a part of our lives. And, you know, again, we're going there for, because we don't feel supported in other places, right? That how many times have you seen people post, you know, my child has this rash, what should I do? And, you know, Bethany and I are like, ah, don't, you know, well, we what don't else are you using? What kind of lighting is that? That will totally change how a rash looks, you know, go to the emergency room, you know, like we don't, you know, yeah. we don't, but you know, again, I've, I've been in that situation too. It's like, okay, it's a hundred dollars for me to go to urgent care right now. Like, is, mm-hmm. is that, can I wait? And it's 3am. Exactly. And no one else is awake and I can't, you know, the on-call doctor can't really tell me much anyway. So, so, you know, there, that this is just the world we're in right now. And, and, you know, I think what we try to do throughout the book is to give people tools or ways of just sort of thinking through some of the, these issues. And, you know, for, for me, that's been helpful of, you know, when, when I can rationalize, you know, what, what's actually happening and, um, and, and find the support that I need quicker. Um, And I think we, you know, I want your, your listeners to know, we're not just out here, like institutions are the best, take your baby, you know, you can only have your baby at a hospital and you have to feed. We don't give advice in this book. We don't say, what the right way is to do something because I don't know what the right way is for somebody else. What I want to see um, and something that we've really pushed for locally with our local health systems. And we talk a lot about in the conclusion, we want larger corporate health systems to start taking social media seriously to understand that social media is playing a role in those doctor patient communications. And no matter how people feel about that, taking it seriously is the first step to having a richer dialogue when you have that space. And because of these care gaps, you know, the care gap, particularly in the postpartum period or in the middle of the night, or, you know, Maggie and I have worked with infertility clinics to, to help create apps that make them available 24 seven to their patients so that patients have a social platform on their phone to go to when they're anxious in the middle of the night. Um, But they can also then be sure that the information they're getting at least matches their particular protocol. You know, we've done a lot of work on Instagram. We've published a couple articles this year on Instagram and infertility conversations, and you can get good information there, but the good information might not match your protocol. So the good information you're getting might not be related to the particular um, medicines you're taking. You might have a different gauge needle. So the angle somebody's telling you to use may actually lead to bruising for you because it's actually a different medication or gauge or, you know, there are so many specifics that we're trying to think through and imagine ways at the end of this book that we can start to see the landscape for what it is and ask institutions to take that seriously while cautioning people that, there is stuff that they can find that's technically good on social media, but may not apply to them and to their situation. Yeah. And so I think um, just 
talking a little bit more about the some of the take-home messages in terms of what listeners or readers can lean from your book in terms of how to, you know, you know some some wisdom that can be gained about parenting in the modern age, given what we know about history, given what we know about cultural trends. And I think that that is an important message that, first of all, that no advice given or taken is one size fits all. And by the way, I think that's an important message as parents ourselves, right? Because we have a tendency to to give advice like, hey, this worked for me, but to recognize that as you're giving it, to qualify, like this worked for me, it may or may not work for you um, because that's just a truth. And you and I, uh, the three of us had discussed briefly before um, I started the recording that we all really look fondly on Emily Oster's work, and she was a previous mm-hmm. guest on here for um, as a she offers a really lovely model for making decisions, which is to look to the data and at the same time to sort of have the data as one part of the decision process, but also to consider personal preferences, your personal mm-hmm. circumstances, and your self knowledge. And I think as we were talking about, your book really provides sort of more credence for like why that model is useful. Um, yeah. yeah Anyone that loves Oster's work, uh, we do too. And also with our experience with Oster, just in emails that she's actually a really lovely person um, that you kind of, who you perceive her to be on podcasts seems to be who she is. She's, she's lovely. really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we'd like to offer is that our book helps explain why people are in a situation where they feel they need Oster's work, which I think Oster's work then becomes a tool. So it also, it's almost like a nice pairing, like read our book and then you'll be like, oh, wow, this is a mess. Okay, now let's read Oster. And I think um, something else that we argue for in our book and, and have the space to in our book is that you know, Maggie and I can take Oster's method and her research and we can use it. And because we have white privilege and educational privilege and class privilege, people will be more respectful of our decisions than they will if a single woman of color is using the Oster method to come to a decision that works for her. And so part of our work as academics and just individuals in society is to keep telling those stories and keep talking about how these privileges make the experience so different depending on who you are and how you can't even access really good methods sometimes without getting that extra dose of judgment. That That's such a, a truth for, for so many people in our society. And, and, and I think, you know, sometimes even if you have privilege, you still feel that judgment, you know, 100%. burn. And if you don't, then it's, it's that much of a more significant um, thing to contend with. Mm-hmm. And um, I also think... For our book, you know, that a lot of the health crises that women are in are not a choice, right? And so these are situations that, you know, such as infant or baby loss, um, that, you know, they didn't get to choose to participate in. And so, you know, how how do we help support people in these difficult moments um, when when they're trying to express grief online and mm-hmm you know, when people are shaming them for posting, you know, an image of, of their stillborn baby. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think Bethany really helped me understand that a little more by looking at, you know, the history of, of the photography, that that was a cultural ritual that people engaged in and, um, and, you know, trying to find space and to help people grieve in, in ways that are, are healing for them. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm glad that you raised that because we didn't have time to go into your chapter on grieving loss, but it, it was it was a really illuminating chapter in terms of how traditions, you know, were during the Victorian era, era versus what traditions are like now. And I'll also just mention another great chapter that we didn't have time to get into was this, uh, the Better Babies chapter, which I think is such an, a relevant one for parents because there's so much comparison that happens. And just the exploration of the history of like baby contests into our yeah. modern era of like posting all of our, you know, fabulous pictures and bragging about our kids hitting developmental milestones Mm -hmm. really helps you to kind of get a better perspective on like why we do that and what are the dangers and and sort of how maybe we can approach that differently for ourselves to reduce our own anxiety. Um, One of the the things that I really thought a lot about as I was reading your book is this idea of practical wisdom, which I had talked a lot about with a different guest, Barry Schwartz. 
Mm-hmm. And practical wisdom is defined as figuring out the right way to do the right thing in a particular circumstance with a particular person at a particular time. And I do think that idea really fits into Emily Oster's um, framework mm-hmm. too, which is to sort of use the things that you have at your disposal, whether it's um, you know our advanced medical knowledge or um, the social support that you could get through social media, um, the lay support and, and expertise that you have from your mother-in-law, but also use your own internal wisdom. Like be willing to know yourself and to disregard some of the judgment or some of the messages of you're doing it wrong mm-hmm. in favor of your own self-knowledge, that that is a really important thing to develop some confidence in and to sort of allow that voice to get a little bit louder in the context of all this information that's coming in because we can't really stop it. And and it's true in history that like it was always present and, and maybe now it's just louder because there's so much of it and there's so many avenues for it to come in at us through. Um, but at the same time, it's really important not to disregard our own voice and our own experience, physical, emotional, psychological um, etc. Et when Maggie and I talk about what's going on with our own kids, you know, a lot, sort of how you talked about framing it earlier, I'll say, well, can you do this? Or we do this, but I feel like that wouldn't work with Sweeney, right? You know, <laughs> just from what I know of her kids, I'll be like, does Teddy like this? Because Otto likes this. So maybe that would work for Teddy. But do you think knowing what you know about Teddy, you know, and it's really a a dialogue that we're having. It's not that I'm afraid to say something to Maggie. I really mean it when I'm asking it that way. Like, well, this works for us, but I don't think at all that that's what would necessarily work for you. Um, But just being able to have that exchange and having someone with different kids and a different setting and a different schedule. um, Sometimes it can be a relief just to hear that someone can do it really differently and they're struggling just like you are. And that's one of the really beautiful things about social media too. Yeah. We're all doing it wrong. <laughs> we're all doing it wrong. And we're whatever all we do now, we're all human, right? That, that's just the yes. of it. And we, our kids someday will be like, mom, I can't believe <laughs> that you made me use all those wooden blocks. Now we know that wood is very bad for children. Yeah. Um, you know, it could, who knows, who knows what will be considered horrible by the time we uh, no longer have little kids. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for coming on and sharing your practical and <laughs> experiential wisdom and your your sort of approach to thinking about parenthood and in all the different phases. And we'll definitely link our listeners to your, your recent book and to some of the, hopefully, I'll, I can also link to your individual web pages or yeah. anywhere else that you think would be interesting for people to be able to look at your work. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you again for honoring us with your time and your wisdom. Thank this you. Was this great. Was Thank you. Talk. It was like three friends talking. <laughs> I know. So good. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.